This is the first chapter of uh, Satipatthana, Direct Path to Realization, and this chapter is called General Aspects of the Direct Path. To begin, I will survey the underlying structure of the Satipatthana Sutta and consider some general aspects of the four Satipatthanas. I will then examine the expression Direct Path and also Satipatthana. Satipatthana, as the quote-unquote direct path to Nibbāna, has received a detailed treatment in the Satipatthana Sutta of the Majjhima Nikāya. Precisely the same discourse recurs in the Maha Satipatthana Sutta of the Diga Nikāya, the long discourses, the only difference being that this version offers a more extensive treatment of the Four Noble Truths, the last of the Satipatthana contemplations. So the one that I read yesterday was the one from the Majjhima Nikāya, and so the only difference, as he says, is that last section on the Four Noble Truths. The topic of Satipatthana has moreover inspired several shorter discourses in the Sanyutta Nikaya and the Anguttara Nikaya. Those are the uh, discourses connected by subject and the discourses connected by numbers. Apart from the Pali sources, expositions on Satipatthana are also preserved in Chinese and Sanskrit, with intriguing occasional variations from the Pali presentations. And uh, in this um, other book, The um, Perspectives on Satipatthana, then he goes a lot more into those um, different uh, recensions, particularly from the Chinese. Most of the discourses in the Sangyutta Nikaya and the Anguttara Nikaya mention only the bare outline of the four Satipatthanas without going into the details of their possible applications. This functional division into four Satipatthanas seems to be a direct outcome of the Buddha's awakening, a central aspect of his rediscovery of an ancient path of practice. <clears throat> but the detailed instructions found in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta apparently belong to a later period when the Buddha's teaching had spread from the Ganges Valley to the distant Kamasadhamma in the Kuru country, where both discourses were spoken. Also, Kuru is the, in the north... Um, to the north and west of the uh, Ganges Valley, uh, so where um, uh, where the Kulu uh, Valley is today, and also the Kurukshetra of um, the um, uh, the, uh, the um, Mahabharata, the ancient Indian epic Mahabharata and Bhagavad Gita. That's Kurukshetra is the, the battlefield there. So the Kuru country is in that area to the north and west of the the uh, Ganges Valley. In Figure One uh, below. Oops diagram here. Uh, I have attempted to offer an overview of the structure underlying the detailed exposition of Satipatthana given in the Satipatthana Sutta, with each of the sections of the discourse represented by a box and arranged from bottom to top. So uh, obviously you're sitting too far away to see that in detail. <laughs> but uh, essentially it starts off with direct path at the bottom and then uh, going to the definition and then it goes through uh, you know, each of the um, uh, the, the the different uh, dimensions that are explored in terms of the body, feelings, mind, and dhammas, and then uh, between each of those those sections, as I was reading yesterday, there's the refrain, what's called the the, the repetitive refrain that uh, talks about how each one of those uh, need only be um, sustained for um, uh, bare mindfulness and attention, and that uh, when they're applied without um, uh, without clinging, then they will lead to realization. And then at the very end you get the prediction, and then uh, 
the uh, also a reiteration of the direct path. The starting and concluding sections of the discourse is a passage which states that Satipatthana constitutes the direct path to Nibbana. The next section of the discourse offers a short definition of the most essential aspects of this direct path. This definition, quote-unquote, mentions four Satipatthanas for contemplation, body, feelings, mind, and dhammas. The definition also specifies the mental qualities that are instrumental for Satipatthana. One should be diligent, athapi, clearly knowing, sampajana, mindful, sati, and free from desires and discontent, vinaya abhijja dhomanasa. So those are the ones that, uh, that uh, repeat themselves over and over again. So um, to be diligent, atapi, uh, sampajana, clearly knowing, mindful, sati, and free from desires and discontent with the relationship to the world, vinaya abhijja dhomanasa. After this definition, the discourse describes the four satipatthanas of body, feelings, mind, and dhammas in detail. The range of the first satipatthana, contemplation of the body, proceeds from mindfulness of breathing, postures, and activities, via analyses of the body into its anatomical parts and elements, to contemplating a corpse in decay. The next two satipatthanas are concerned with contemplating feelings and mind. The fourth Satipatthana lists five types of Dhammas for contemplation. The mental hindrances, the aggregates, the sense spheres, the awakening factors, and the four noble truths. After the actual meditation practices, the discourse returns to the direct path statement via a prediction about the time within which realization can be expected. Throughout the discourse, a particular formula follows each individual meditation practice. This Satipatthana refrain, quote-unquote, completes each instruction by repeatedly emphasizing the important aspects of the practice. According to this refrain, Satipatthana contemplation covers internal and external phenomena and is concerned with their arising and passing away. The refrain also points out that mindfulness should be established merely for the sake of developing bare knowledge and for achieving continuity of awareness. According to the same refrain, Proper Satipatthana contemplation takes place free from any dependence or clinging. The entire discourse is framed by an introduction, which conveys the occasion of its delivery and a conclusion which reports the delighted reaction of the monks after the Buddha's exposition. By placing the definition, quote-unquote, and the refrain, quote-unquote, at the center of the above figure, I intend to highlight their central role in the discourse. As the figure shows, the discourse weaves a recurring pattern that systematically alternates between the specific meditation instructions and the refrain. Each time, the task of the refrain is to direct attention to those aspects of Satipatthana that are essential for proper practice. The same pattern also applies to the start of the discourse, where a general introduction to the topic of Satipatthana through the direct path statement is followed by the definition which has the role of pointing out its essential characteristics. In this way, both the definition and the refrain indicate what is essential. Thus, for a proper understanding and implementation of Satipatthana, the information contained in the definition and the refrain is of particular importance. On closer inspection, the sequence of the contemplations listed in the Satipatthana Sutta reveals a progressive pattern. Contemplation of the body progresses from the rudimentary experience of bodily postures 
and activities to contemplating the body's anatomy. The increased sensitivity developed in this way forms the basis of, uh, for contemplation of feelings. A shift of awareness from the immediately accessible physical aspects of experience to feelings as more refined and subtle objects of awareness. Contemplation of feelings divides feelings not only according to their affective quality into pleasant, unpleasant and neutral types, but also distinguishes these according to their worldly or unworldly nature. The latter part of the contemplation of feelings thus introduces an ethical distinction of feelings, which serves as a stepping stone for directing awareness to the ethical distinction between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind, mentioned at the start of the next Satipatthana, or contemplation of the mind. Contemplation of the mind proceeds from the presence or absence of four unwholesome states of mind, lust, anger, delusion, and distraction, to contemplating the presence or absence of four higher states of mind. The concern with higher states of mind in the latter part of the contemplation of the mind naturally lends itself to a detailed investigation of those factors which particularly obstruct deeper levels of concentration. These are the hindrances, the first object of contemplation of the Dhammas. After covering the hindrances to meditation practice, contemplation of Dhammas progresses to two analyses of subjective experience. The five aggregates, that's the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness, and the six sense spheres, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. These analyses are followed by the awakening factors, the next contemplation of Dhammas. The culmination of Satipatthana practice is reached with the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths, full understanding of which coincides with realization. Considered in this way, the sequence of the Satipatthana contemplation leads progressively from grosser to more subtle levels. This linear progression is not without practical relevance, since the body contemplations recommend themselves as a foundational exercise for building up a basis of sati, while the final contemplation of the Four Noble Truths covers the experience of Nibbāna, the Third Noble Truth concerning the cessation of Dukkha, and thus corresponds to the culmination of any successful implementation of Satipatthana. At the same time, however, this progressive pattern does not prescribe the only possible way of practicing Satipatthana. To take the progression of the meditation exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta as indicating a necessary sequence would severely limit the range of one's practice, since only those experiences or phenomena that fit into this preconceived pattern will be proper objects of awareness. Yet, a central characteristic of Satipatthana is awareness of phenomena as they are and as they occur. Although such awareness will naturally proceed from the gross to the subtle, in actual practice it will quite probably vary from the sequence depicted in the discourse. A flexible and comprehensive development of Satipatthana should encompass all aspects of experience, in whatever sequence they occur. All Satipatthanas can be of continual relevance throughout one's progress along the path. The practice of contemplating the body, for example, is not something to be left behind and discarded at some more advanced point in one's progress. Much rather, it continues to be a relevant practice even for an arahant. Understood in this way, the meditation exercises listed in the Satipatthana Sutta can be seen as mutually supportive. The sequence in which they are practiced may be altered in order to meet the needs of each individual meditator. Not only do the four Satipatthana support each other, but they could even be integrated within a single meditation practice. This is documented in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness of Breathing, 
which describes how mindfulness of breathing can be developed in such a way that it encompasses all four satipatthanas. This exposition demonstrates the possibility of comprehensively combining all four satipatthanas within the practice of a single meditation. So this is a fairly um, densely written, but uh, I feel it, it's uh, uh, there's some very useful uh, points wi within this, and um, uh, he goes into the um, uh, the definition and the refrain aspects uh, in in more detail later on, and uh, the um, but this particular aspect he's describing here about going from the most the most coarse to the more subtle is a, a useful thing to understand. So rather like in the five khandas, you have rupa at the beginning, rupa, vedna, sanya, sankara, vinyana. So that starts off with rupa, a physical a form, material form of the body, and then goes through um, uh, in more uh, to more and more subtle or refined um, elements of experience. So uh, rupa, material form, and then feeling, uh, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. So, uh, so too, it, uh, the Satipatthana follows a similar kind of spectrum from the coarsest, um, and I think he describes it very well here, how uh, you have the different aspects of the body, and then um, the, all the different uh, say, postures, the uh, different activities of the body, um, the, the different things that make up the body, and then also the, uh, the process of the, of the, the body in a state of decay, in its varying different uh, Sort of stages of disintegration after the death of the body, so it, it covers that in a lot of detail. Then goes on to uh, onto feelings, uh, uh, physical sensations, and then uh, the aspects of mind. And then, as I was saying, the um, uh, yesterday about uh, the contemplation of dhammas, as he says, um, the uh, let's see, he phrases it as some. Um, The concern with the higher states of mind in the latter part of the contemplation of mind naturally lends itself to a detailed investigation of those factors which particularly obstruct the deeper levels of concentration. These are the hindrances, the first object of contemplation of dhammas. So it's like uh, the, the, what you have in the contemplation of dhammas is the different ways that we can analyze our, uh, the process of experience. So that it's like the, looking at the nature of experiencing it, itself. So it starts off uh, looking at uh, the five hindrances and then the format of the five khandas, the format of the six senses, and then the um, uh, the factors of enlightenment and the, and the four noble truths, so that that um, uh, say the the sequence uh, goes from the body, feeling, mind states, and then uh, the um, the quality of of wise reflection or investigation, and then the different modes of investigation, just as Say with the uh, the Dhammachaka Sutta, you've got the Four Noble Truths and the Middle Way as the the mode of investigation. Uh, the Anathalakana Sutta, the discourse on not self, you've got the Five Khandas and uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self as the mode of investigation. And then the Fire Sermon, the, the third of the the Cardinal Discourses, you've got the Six Senses and uh, Raga, Dosa, and Moha, and delu uh, 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 greed, hatred, and delusion uh, as the sort of the format for contemplation. So, as he says, it's not like a, a linear progression, but these are sort of dis describing, uh, say, different ways that things can be uh, can be looked at. Maybe also to uh, one of the interesting things about the Satipatthana Sutta 
um, and mindfulness in general is that uh, the mindfulness of the body, um, kayanupasana, uh, is a is much the largest section of the whole sutta. The, uh, it's a um, uh, there's far more dimensions to it, and there's far more page space, and so that uh, it can be that when we're thinking about uh, mindfulness and uh, the attention goes to the mental world and to uh, thoughts and feelings and uh, perceptions and so on, but the um, and the, this idea that the the body is a sort of a preliminary practice, and you sort of you get over that, and then you get onto the the higher stuff. But as he points out. Um, the practice of contemplating the body is not something to be left behind and discarded at some more advanced point in one's progress. Much rather, it continues to be relevant practice even for an arahant. And um, so that, that uh, it's important to say, consider how within the forest tradition, uh, mindfulness of the body is, uh, the, in a sense, in, in many respects, the sort of the center, the centerpiece of sort of day-to-day dharma practice, and that. Most of the forest ajans, at least that I'm familiar with, will emphasize that the mindfulness of the body as the the, um, the kind of core practice of, for developing moment by moment mindfulness. The um, the tendency for us, um, particularly um, in the West, where we are very head oriented, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, I think it's, it happens um, to be the very. Um, uh, uh, very much a part of life in in the uh, the east as well, but then maybe the people in the west are even more heady than people in the east. But uh, the the relevance of mindfulness of the body and kayanupasana uh, and contemplation of the body you know, can't really be overstated because one of the instructions I I give or what I point out more and more um, more often than anything else when teaching meditation is that the the body is always in the present moment. So if you want to establish mindfulness at the present moment, you've got an absolute guaranteed, fail-safe, totally reliable um, access point that your body it never your body never wanders off into the past or the future. So I often like to say it's like the most faithful friend. No matter how distracted you get, no matter how carried away, it's it's always there to come back to. I've never known an instance where someone's got so distracted in their meditation that when they when they they um, when they realised they were lost, they came back and their body was missing from the meditation cushion. <laughs> I've uh, I've heard rumours, but <laughs> but uh, I've never actually known that happen. That no matter how far your mind wanders into its own states of absorption and distraction, the body is always here to come back to it. It lives in the present moment. Therefore, it's an absolutely fail-safe, guaranteed uh, access point for bringing the attention to the present. It's also uh, uh, an ab- uh, you know, absolutely a part of nature. The, the body, whether you like it or not, is always functioning in accordance with nature. And so uh, our, our thinking and our, our perceptions, our attitudes, can easily be out of uh, whack with nature. They can be, uh, we can be trying to occupy a reality that just does not exist, um, according to our fantasies and our imaginings, our opinions, our, our conditioning. Um, our mind, our thinking mind, can create just like movies and cartoons, and, and they, they create stories, you know, things that don't exist, people that fly through the air, or uh, people that expand into giant green hulks <laughs> and bounce off buildings. Like, no, it doesn't happen in real life. It happens in movies, but it's, it's, uh, we can imagine it, 
but in the real world, no. You know, people don't get hit by gamma rays and turn into into muscular green giants. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Sorry if anyone's disappointed. But, uh, Father Christmas also. <laughs> you know, these are fantasies that the mind can create and dwell in, but the body does not dwell in those realms. The body is always uh, 100% part of the natural order. It cannot not be. <laughs> and it's always present. It's a, it's a pachupana dhamma. It's a, it's a here and now phenomenon. So um, if we want our attention to be grounded in reality and to be grounded in the present moment, then there's an absolutely guaranteed, uh, completely reliable way of doing that, which is the body. So that <coughs> can't be overemphasized um, about how, uh, uh, say, important that is. It's also um, <coughs> the, the mind can think, well, it's just it's just the body. I mean, it's just it's just the conditional. I'm really interested in the unconditioned. You know, the body is like so conditioned. You know, it's so kind of temporary and. Uh, I'm really not interested. I want transcendence. I want the unconditioned. I want that. But uh, if you look in the Sangita Nikaya, the connected discourses, uh, if you look in the uh, the Asankata Sangyuta, the connected discourses about the unconditioned, Sutta number one in that collection uh, says, uh, uh, the Buddha says, uh, I will teach you the unconditioned and the way leading to the unconditioned. What is the way leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed towards the body. This is the way leading to the unconditioned. So, <laughs> so even though the body is uh, is very conditioned and dependent, it breathes all the time, it needs to eat, and it's born and it dies. Um, that uh, that is a very uh, clear statement. You know, Sutta number one in that that connection in that collection uh, is pointing that out. That it's uh, uh, so that it's not the, the 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 case that by bringing attention to the uh, the con uh, conditioned form, like the body or the breath, that the mind gets locked uh, or uh, absorbed or becomes limited by the condition, but rather through bringing attention, uh, wise attention to the conditioned form, like the body, then um, that uh, uh, that very quality of attention, that very uh, the very understanding that arises from knowing the conditioned. And then thereby, that through that knowing, that, that leading to uh, to non-attachment, to abandonment, to relinquishment, then that facilitates the realization of the the unconditioned. So um, it's uh, it's important to to not think, okay, well, this is as he points out, it's not just oh, this is a preliminary or basic practice, and then we'll get on to the you know real uh, the the real uh, important stuff. <laughs> um, it's a, it, that's a, a misunderstanding, a, mis, a misreading of it, but it, it's included all the way along. Just as if you read the, the suttas and the descriptions of the Buddha's life, you know, as he said, that the mindfulness of the body continues to be relevant even for an arahant. The Buddha used to like to do mindfulness of breathing. He said is his favorite, uh, the most pleasant abiding is watching his breath. And, and the frequent descriptions of him doing walking meditation. You, know, you think, well, he's a Buddha, he doesn't need to watch his breath. <laughs> But uh, he, uh, it's a, a pleasant abiding for a Tathagata is to to, uh, to abide watching the breath or to to uh, to be practicing walking meditation in the in the early morning. So to continue, can I ask something? Sure. Uh, just an, um, um, chapter, just a, the overview 
when you mentioned the giving part. Um, worldly and unworldly. Right. And so I was puzzled by what does it actually mean? Because usually it's um, bodily, fine material, non-material, mm. you know, in, in terms of healing classes. And in this case, it's a different world. And I asked Mr. what the Pali is for that. And I can't repeat it, but it, it's clearly, in, in her understanding, uh, kind of worldly interest and, and more virtual interest uh, in that sense. Um, I was just puzzled, you know, if, if she could maybe give examples what what Healing would be more worldly, would be more unworldly. Well, let's say a, a worldly pleasant feeling would be when you're hungry and you don't have diabetes, taking a mouthful of Schwarzwalder Kircher Kucher <laughs> topped with, with whipped cream, Schlagobers, and <coughs> putting that in your mouth and going, ooh. So that's worldly pleasant feeling. So unworldly pleasant feeling would be um, sitting in the temple, uh, the mind not clinging to anything, uh, filled with brightness and uh, and uh, a sense of uh, of joy and ease. So it's a uh, a pleasant feeling that is not associated with sense desire. That's my understanding of it, or the um, the. Uh, of course, uh, Vedana is mostly to do with sensation, physical sensation. It's not so much, I mean, they, they overlap a bit, obviously, but Vedana is mostly to do with physical sensation. Um, but if you, if you uh, look at the descriptions of jhana, so that, uh, like, the, the descriptions of um, the mind absorbed into jhana, it's like the, the, um, the body is uh, uh, is filled with a pleasant feeling, just as a, a sponge is filled with water. You know, every every uh, every corner of the sponge is is uh, steeped and filled with the with the water that, that uh, um, sort of as as it's immersed in the water, the sponge is filled with it. So too is the body completely steeped and filled with this with this pleasant feeling. So that I would say is the like the pleasant feeling from jhana or the pleasant feeling that comes from non-attachment. Uh, that would be a, a non-worldly pleasant feeling. I, I got into my uh, Buddhist dictionary, Nana Loka, and um, tried to figure out what it could mean. And um, there it says that worldly is even the fine material and immaterial is still considered as world because it's still uh, Well, it, it can be. I mean, the, I feel that it's important to see that the Buddha is using the terms fairly flexibly. That, 
and it's like you know he's just saying a uh, worldly pleasant feeling unworldly pleasant feeling you know people like to get into the the oh, what it, what it actually means is <laughs> but it, it's uh, uh, you can say well it only refers to the pleasant feeling that arises from you know from total non-attachment but uh, I think it's a bit broader than that, really, and it's it's just both both saying that, or a, like a a, a a an unworldly, unpleasant feeling. You know, it can be. Uh, I would say that within within that category is say that uh, it's unworldly. It's not based on on sense desire, but it's an it's a, a painful feeling, um, and uh, which might be like a. a um, the the feeling of um, say uh, um, it, when you see someone acting in a cruel way, an unkind way, there's a ooh, there's a painful feeling, there's that, like otapa, the sense of of painfulness in your uh, in your heart, the, the kind of recoiling from seeing unskillful action. That's a painful feeling, but it's a, it's a, it's unworldly. It's, it's based on a wholesome quality in yourself, so that. Uh, uh, so that's that's how I tend to frame it in my own mind. Yeah, because then, when in the net context you were reading, he suddenly introduces the thing of ethical. You know that the worldly, unworldly mm-hmm. uh, brings the ethical dimension in it, and skillful, unskillful. Then, when it comes to uh, the mind. Yeah, he said. I, I can just read that if you like. So, Uh, The latter part of contemplation of feelings thus introduces an ethical distinction of feelings which serves as a stepping stone for directing awareness to the ethical distinction between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind mentioned at the start of the next Satipatthana, contemplation of mind. So that, uh, like a a, um, similarly, uh, a a painful feeling uh, that's based on, I mean, like I said about Otapa, and it also could be that painful feeling that you feel when you've just told a lie or you just said something that was un, uh, unkind to, to somebody, uh, you've just acted in a way that 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 painful feeling in your own heart is a uh, is a painful feeling that's that's unworldly or it's, it's based on wholesome qualities on your own sila tamma. <laughs> okay, so I'll carry on a bit. <clears throat> so this section is called The Relevance of Each Satipatthana for Realization. According to the Anapanasati Sutta, it's possible to develop a variety of different aspects of Satipatthana contemplation with a single meditation object and in due course cover all four Satipatthanas. So it, well, what, uh, is in, the Sati, in the Anapanasati Sutta, the, the Buddha points out just within following the breath, you, uh, each uh, uh, each of the four satipatthanas in terms of the body, feelings, mind states, and dhammas can be explored just by the the uh, the, the rhythm of the breath being observed and uh, attended to. So this raises the question: How far a single satipatthana or even a single meditation exercise can be taken as a complete practice in its own right? Several discourses relate the practice of a single satipatthana directly to realization. Similarly, the commentaries assigned to each single satipatthana, medi- uh, each, sorry, to each single satipatthana meditation, the capacity to lead to full awakening. This may well be why a high percentage of present-day meditation teachers focus on the use of a single meditation technique, 
on the ground that a single-minded and thorough perfection of one meditation technique can cover all aspects of Satipatthana and thus be sufficient to gain realization. So, for example, uh, Goenkaji focuses on Vedana, 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 I'm told. <laughs> I've never been on one of his retreats, but that's the, um, uh, my, the understanding that I have, is that he focuses uh, very, very much on that uh, uh, dimension of feeling, and that uh, that's the, uh, the gateway that, uh, that he uses. Indeed, the development of awareness with any particular meditation technique will automatically result in a marked increase in one's general level of awareness, thereby enhancing one's capacity to be mindful in regard to situations that do not form part of one's primary object of meditation. In this way, even those aspects of Satipatthana that have not deliberately been made the object of contemplation, to some extent still receive mindful attention as a byproduct of the primary practice. Yet the exposition in the Anapanasati Sutta does not necessarily imply that by being aware of the breath, one automatically covers all aspects of Satipatthana. What the Buddha demonstrated here was how a thorough development of Sati can lead from the breath to a broad range of objects, encompassing different aspects of subjective reality. Clearly, such a broad range of aspects was the outcome of a deliberate development, otherwise the Buddha would not have needed to deliver a whole discourse on how to achieve this. In fact, several meditation teachers and scholars place a strong emphasis on covering all four Satipatthanas in one's practice. According to them, although one particular meditation practice can serve as the primary object of attention, the other aspects of Satipatthana should be deliberately contemplated too, even if only in a secondary manner. This approach can claim some support from the concluding part of the Satipatthana Sutta, the prediction, quote-unquote, of realization. This passage stipulates the development of all four Satipatthanas for contemplation to lead to the realization of the higher two stages of awakening, non-returning, anagami, and arahantship. The fact that all four Satipatthanas are mentioned suggests that it is the comprehensive practice of all four which is particularly capable of leading to high levels of realization. The same is also indicated by a statement in the Satipatthana Sangyutta, which relates the realization of arahantship to complete quote-unquote practice of the four Satipatthanas, while partial practice corresponds to lesser levels of realization. In a passage in the Anapana Sangyutta, it's a connected teachings about um, breathing, the Buddha compared the four Satipatthanas to chariots coming from four directions each driving through and thereby scattering a heap of dust lying at the center of a crossroads. This simile suggests that each Satipatthana is in itself capable of overcoming unwholesome states, just as any of the chariots is able to scatter the heap of dust. At the same time, this simile also illustrates the cooperative effort of all, so all four Satipatthanas, since, with chariots coming from all directions, the heap of dust will be scattered even more. Thus, any single meditation practice from the Satipatthana scheme is capable of leading to deep insight, especially if developed according to the key instructions given in the definition and refrain of the discourse. Nevertheless, an attempt to cover all four Satipatthanas in one's practice does more justice to the distinct character of the various meditations described in the Satipatthana Sutta, and thereby ensures speedy progress and a balanced and comprehensive development. Well, certainly that was uh, the, the approach that Lumpur Cha and Lumpur Sumedho have um, uh, encouraged 
over the years that um, rather than focusing on a particular technique or, or like one specific method or, or one aspect of of Satipatthana um, like the uh, <coughs> the um, uh, say the focusing on on Vedana or feeling um, or uh, any, any of the other particular dimensions that uh, they, they encourage a uh, uh, the whole spectrum of uh, of development. It's also what you would find in Thailand was that um, uh, people would in, within different monasteries they have different ways of languaging things, and, and they would uh, um, uh, and they would sort of ask the question: you, Do you practice insight or do you practice satipatthana? Um, well, aren't they the same thing? No, 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 no. Oh, really? <laughs> because in, in certain monasteries or certain retreat centers, they they, they use uh, different ways of of language uh, of languaging things. So uh, the um, and the, and that uh, that way of a particular so teacher emphasizing one aspect, saying, "No, no, this is this is the true way. This is the right thing." Um, Ajahn Chah tended to to steer away from that. Lumpur Samedha similarly. Rather than focusing on a particular technique or a particular expression uh, as sort of being the way or, or, or the, the, the one and only method, uh, Ajahn Chah would uh, uh, really uh, <laughs> make the, the effort to steer the attention towards the, the attitude with, it, with which all different methods are being applied. So it's not sort of this particular technique of, of following the 16 stages of insight or walking meditation or uh, following the breath, or, or um, focusing on uh, uh, feeling, or whatever. But what's the attitude with which you are picking up any particular practice? What's the attitude that you're bringing to following the breath? What's the attitude that you're bringing to to looking at the um, thirty-two parts of the body? What's the attitude that you're you're bringing to walking meditation? What's the attitude that you're bringing to your your working life, or cleaning the sala, or um, eating your food? You know what? Uh, and so. Uh, uh, Ajahn Chah would um, say would be uh, quite happy to teach a huge variety of different methods. Sometimes he just make them up spontaneously, and um, and uh, you know he would think it would be a, you know, a useful technique for somebody to try in a certain situation. And uh, but the the, the, uh, the particular um, concern would be: uh, Are you uh, are you filled with a gaining mind? Are you uh, are you trying to um, say get something? Are you assuming that if you just follow your breath, then uh, without without a break, then you're going to become a, an arahant and you're fixated on it's the breath, it's the breath, it's the breath, it's the breath. Um, what's the attitude that you're picking up <clears throat> something with? And so then um, the particular focus or particular meditation technique or the particular method that that you were using at a certain time would be would be secondary to the the attitude that you're bringing to it so i'll just read the next section and then um uh, that leads us up to the um, exploration about the direct path so this is called the character of each satipatthana the need for such comprehensive development is related to the fact that each satipatthana has a different character and can thereby serve a slightly different purpose this is documented in the neti pakarana and the other and the commentaries 
which illustrate the particular character of each Satipatthana with a set of correlations. According to the commentaries, each of the four Satipatthanas corresponds to a particular aggregate. The aggregates of material form, rupa, feeling, vedana, and consciousness, vijnana, match the first three Satipatthanas, while the aggregates of cognition, sanya, that's in the, um, usually sanya is translated as perception, but Venerable Analio uses cognition, uh, while well, the aggregates of cognition, sanya, and volitions, sankara, correspond to the contemplation of tamas. On closer inspection, this correlation appears a little forced, since the third satipatthana, contemplation of the mind, corresponds to all the mental aggregates and not only to consciousness. Moreover, the fourth satipatthana, contemplation of dhammas, includes the entire set of the five aggregates as one of its meditations, and thus has a wider range than just the two aggregates of cognition, sanya, and volition sankara. Nevertheless, what the commentaries might intend to indicate is that all aspects of one's subjective experience are to be investigated with the aid of the four satipatthanas. It's a simple way of putting it. Understood in this way, the division into four satipatthanas represents an analytical approach similar to a division of subjective experience into the five aggregates. Both attempt to dissolve the illusion of the observer's substantiality. So letting go of the sense of I and me and mine in the, in, the, uh, in the structure of things. By turning awareness to the different facets of one's subjective experience, these aspects will be experienced simply as objects, and the notion of compactness, the sense of a solid I, will begin to disintegrate. In this way, the more subjective experience can be seen objectively, the more the I identification diminishes. The correspond, uh, this correlates well with the Buddha's instruction to investigate thoroughly each ag aggregate to the point where no more I can be found. In addition to the aggregate correlation, the commentaries recommend each of the four Satipatthanas for a specific type of character or inclination. According to them, body and feeling contemplation should be the main field of practice for those who tend towards craving. While meditators given to intellectual speculation should place more emphasis on contemplating mind or dhammas. Understood in this way, practice of the first two satipatthanas suits those with a more affective inclination, more feeling types, while the last two are recommended for those of a more cognitive or thinking types. In most cases, those whose character is to think and react quickly can profitably center their practice on the relatively subtler contemplations of feelings or dhammas, while those whose mental faculties are more circumspect and measured will have better results if they base their practice on the grosser objects of body or mind. Although these recommendations are expressed in terms of character type, they could also be applied to one's momentary disposition. One could choose that satipatthana that best corresponds to one's state of mind, so that when one feels sluggish and desirous, for example, contemplation of the body would be the appropriate practice to be undertaken. The Netipakarana and the Visuddhimagga also set the four Satipatthanas in opposition to the four distortions, the Vipalasas, which are to mistake what is unattractive, unsatisfactory and impermanent um, and, uh, and not self for being attractive, satisfactory, permanent and a self. According to them, contemplation of the body has the potential to reveal in particular the absence of bodily beauty. Observation of the true nature of feelings can counter one's incessant search for fleeting pleasures. 
Awareness of the ceaseless succession of states of mind can disclose the impermanent nature of all subjective experience, and contemplation of Dhammas can reveal that the notion of a substantial and permanent self is nothing but an illusion. This presentation brings to light the main theme that underlies each of the four Satipatthanas and, in, and indicates which of them is particularly appropriate for dispelling the illusion of beauty, happiness, permanence or self. Although the corresponding insights are certainly not restricted to one Satipatthana alone, nevertheless this particular correlation indicates which Satipatthana is particularly suitable in order to correct a specific distortion of Vipalasa. This correlation, too, may be fruitfully applied in accordance with one's general character, uh, character disposition, or else can be used in order to counteract the momentary manifestation of any particular distortion. In the end, however, all four Satipatthanas partake of the same essence. Each of them leads to realization, like different gateways leading to the same city. As the commentaries point out, the fourfold division is only functional and can be compared to a weaver splitting a piece of bamboo into four parts to weave a basket. So much for a preliminary survey of the four Satipatthanas. By way of providing some background to the title I've chosen for this work, I will now turn to the two key expressions, direct path and Satipatthana. But not yet. <laughs> so uh, just to say a few words about that, um, that uh, last section, uh, I think that's... Uh, dealing with the four distortions, the vipalasas, this is, um, again, this is a very uh, standard and very helpful way of, of uh, relating to the, the practice, so that if you, um, uh, say, if you have a, a strong sense of uh, identification with the body, and, or that your, your mind is very much taken up with, um, uh, say, attraction to other people's bodies, then that kaya uh, nupasana, um, contemplation of the body, and bringing attention to that to kind of understand its nature and to um, to say uh, develop the the sign of uh, of the the unattractive or the uh, asupa is a very uh, 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 very helpful approach and, and again that's a very strong part of a forest tradition practice it's also the uh, um, the um, to say that that is, uh, in itself, can be a, a major theme for, for contemplation. But in, uh, there is a, a, um, uh, a term, patikula sanya, which literally means loathsome or appalling or off-putting, um, which is one way that the, that practice of, uh, say, analyzing the body and looking at its constituent nature is, is uh, represented. Um, uh, but uh, another word that's used is asuba, which literally means not beautiful. And so what that uh, this set of practices are, are aiming to do is to help bring the attention to the, the mind and say, oh, this is beautiful, what, and to, to help us consider, well, what makes, what makes that beautiful? You know, why does my, my eye see that and my mind say, that's attractive, that's, that's a beautiful body, or that's an, an unbeautiful body? What, what is it that makes it beautiful? And so it's a, a way of, say, cutting through that... Um, habitual ascription of the mind, so the, the way that it gives that quality of beauty to a thing, and to, to consider how, well, the beauty is not there in the object, the beauty is in my mind's interpretation of it, you know, it depends your sexual orientation, or your particular, you know, particular mood, um, and uh, how something can be completely unattractive or uninteresting at a certain time, and then really attractive and, and powerfully interesting at an, another time, so that 
um, contemplation of the body, Kayanapasana, is helping to say bring uh, attention to that that particular vipalasa. Then, uh, as he says about, about feelings, the observation of the true nature of feelings can counter one's incessant search for fle fleeting pleasures. That uh, the search for pleasant feeling is a major driving force of the economy. Uh, the entire consumer culture is based on the uh, the the, uh, the quest for permanent pleasant feeling, in one way, shape, or form, um, and you can save a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of time and energy by uh, uh, understanding the nature of feelings as being impermanent, and that no pleasant feeling can possibly last, and to to keep creating. Um, Pleasant feelings is uh, is arduous and and painful and and hard to, and uh, takes a lot of stress and effort and money. Then uh, the other one, in terms of mind, the uh, awareness of the ceaseless succession of states of mind can disclose the impermanent nature of all subjective experience. So uh, again, this is uh, the the language is a little bit technical, but one of the, maybe the easiest way of of relating to this is how we believe our thoughts to be true. That when, when we watch our mind, we, we develop chitanupasana, the, the observing moods, mind states, flow, uh, the flow of thought, um, how we believe our moods. When we are depressed and sad and, and lonely, the world is a horrible place. When we're cheerful and bright and enthusiastic, everything is great. Uh, to recognize, well, that's a mood. <laughs> These are moods that come and go. Uh, the capacity of the mind to believe our thoughts that I think, oh, this is this is right, that is wrong, this is wholesome, uh, this is this is unwholesome. I, I approve of this, I disapprove of that. We take our thoughts to be absolute truths, uh, without mostly without question. And so, Chitanupasana is helping to get a perspective on well. That's just what I, I like to think. That is the way that my mind likes to frame a particular judgment. Uh, it, it calls this good or that bad. It calls this right that or that wrong. It, calls, it says this is true or that's untrue. And um, that uh, quality of Jitanupasana, uh, again, is a very direct and powerful means of Learning how not to believe our thoughts. I don't know how many retreats, how many Dhamma talks I've given about just simply this, uh, this issue of how much difference it makes to our life if we learn how not to believe our thoughts. And I was, uh, uh, it was interesting, um, I was speaking the other day, a, a few weeks ago, about how um, the, uh, uh, one of the most um, powerful uh, Causes for mindfulness to be in the public domain uh, and very, uh, very much a, a subject of, of discussion and uh, many, many programs around the world is the effectiveness of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy on treating depression. And uh, the, um, the the people who launched that program, uh, John Teasdale, Mark Williams, and Zindel Siegel, um, that they they launched that um, uh, through a series of studies in two thousand and seven. Uh, that had a very very big impact around the world, and I, I, dis I discovered just last year, going along to a talk at the Buddhist Society, um, from a, a, a um, an anthropologist, uh, Dr. Cook, Joe Cook, and she said how John Teasdale got the insight into uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy 
um, from listening to a talk by Lumpur Samedo at the Oxford University Buddhist Society, apparently. <laughs> and the, the, the two points that are, are central to MBCT uh, that John got from that talk with Lumpur Samedo is, one, your thoughts are not your own, they're not you, and two, they're not true. <laughs> That's the, the core, the essence of, it, of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And this had, had a, a huge uh, impact worldwide. The treatment of depression, they have a, um, whereas all other forms of treatment of recurrent depression have a maximum of a 10% uh, recovery rate. Right? So that the, the no, one, no form of treatment, whether it's medication or therapy or um, surgery, uh, n nothing has had a better than a 10% recovery rate. MBCT, this, this method, has had a 50% recovery rate. So that got the attention of people around the world. But it's, uh, of course, I feel a certain amount of our team scored a point <laughs> feeling. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's it's so kind of ordinary in terms of satipatthana and our teaching that your, your thoughts are not, they're anatta, they're not self, and they're they are anicca, they're they're they are impermanent, they're transient, they're not reliable, they're they're not true. And so that uh, this uh, Chitanupasana is very much about developing that recognition. Your thoughts are not true and they're not yours. And then the, uh, the last one, the, the uh, Dhammanupasana, the, um, uh, the contemplation of Dhammas can reveal the notion of a substantial and permanent self is nothing but an illusion. So that within um, all of the, the, the body and perceptions, feelings, the, 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 uh, the Dhammanupasana helps to to break up that um, uh, the um, cherished delusion of a separate independent uh, I and it, uh, also venerable Analio um, very cleverly uses this um, when I when I, I emphasize the word I identification he actually has the, the I at the beginning of identification in inverted commas by itself uh, so I inverted commas hyphen identification so I identification is a very a uh, useful little coining of that. So um, those, uh, I mean, he speaks about it very briefly there, but those are, uh, in a way, the, the, that's a, a short summary of how the Satipatthanas uh, say they, they are extraordinarily powerful and helpful tools for us to, to deal with um, the mind's obsession with, uh, with uh, sexual attraction, sexual desire, the way we objectify the body, our, our own body, other people's bodies, and call them beautiful or ugly or attractive or unattractive. How we chase after pleasant feeling uh, and learn to get uh, a, um, uh, a balanced and uh, understanding of feeling. Learning how not to believe our thoughts, not to get um, trapped in the in views and opinions and our incessant thinking, and also how to free the heart from uh, ego-centered, self-centered patterns. So. That is a powerful package, <laughs> right there. But I think, and it's a it's a very helpful uh, little synopsis. Uh, and so that the uh, and those that term the vipalasa distortions is uh, maybe it's not so so common in in the in everyday Buddhist usage, but it's a uh, I think it, it uh, summarizes very very simply and directly you know, those. What, what forms a fabric of, of much of our lives and why probably all of us are gathered here together in, in a Buddhist monastery 
for the for this winter period is to um, to recognize those distortions as distortions and to be working to free the heart from them. So I'll finish uh, there and then uh, offer some time for some questions and uh, any uh, comments. But, uh, on that, um, either on just what I was speaking about there or some of the earlier pieces as well. I have just a short one. Ajahn, is the thought, thoughts are not true, not true at all? It's a convenient fiction. Uh, what does that feel like you, to, to score a point? No, just like <laughs> often, often we say things in such an absolute manner. Yeah, it's a convenient fiction. I mean, all words are lies. I, mean, I can say glass. They are, they are not. Yeah. It's effective. To, this is a glass, that's, that's a microphone. But it's not absolutely and actually permanently and completely a glass. But the word, the sound glass, since most people understand uh, English, will know, okay, that's the, the thing in his hand that is being referred to. Okay, it's close enough. But it's not actually a glass. Actually, actually, actually. So that's the, the, the trick is using... And, and the amazing thing is that you can use convenient fictions to arrive at reality. Amazing. Yes. I was wondering to what extent you recommend maintaining continuity for longer periods of one of the Satipatthanas as opposed to um, whether it's okay to just at any given moment jump from one to the other depending on what's interesting. So say I stay at the breath, but then a feeling comes up, I switch to it, observing a feeling, then I've watched that for a little while, I switch to observing a mind state. And or whether it's better to spend longer times on just one object, what would what you would recommend? Well, everybody's different, so it's uh, what I would recommend is experimenting. So I've, I've done different things at different times. Um, usually, I would just uh, not have any f sort of fixed structure and just be um, uh, bringing attention to whatever was arising in the, in the present. But uh, I've also I, I've uh, done it differently at different times. So one one three month retreat I did in the forest at Chithurst, I just dec decided, okay, I'm gonna make the the whole of this three months. I'm just gonna contemplate Anicca. Yeah, just just for an experiment, just to see what it, see how that works. And I thought, well, it's probably a bit of a waste of time. But yeah, and yeah, Anicca is so simple and straightforward, really. You know. But it was a, it was very revealing and amazingly powerful practice, and uh, just to take that one theme you know, in every situation, uh, in terms of the mental world, the physical world, the internal world, the external world, just kept looking at you know, at each and each and each and each in in every uh, in every aspect, and just making that the uh, a constant theme. So uh, it doesn't mean that then I, I carried on doing that forever afterwards. But it was um, it, it was a uh, it was quite revealing because sometimes if you you step out of your uh, customary habit just to change things around like 
using a, your different hand to eat with, you know, just putting the spoon in your left hand instead of your right hand. <laughs> but, uh, or just change things around, and then you, you can uh, get to see habits that you, you didn't realize that you had, um, or things that you're, you're missing. So uh, sometimes that uh, um, having a system and saying, okay, I'm just going to stay with this one, one particular theme for a day or a week or a month, that, that can have a beneficial effect. For, uh, uh, for somebody else, it might uh, just bring so much stress. Oh, no, I've got to, I said I was going to be just doing Anicca. And oh, oh, you know, I've, I've lost my Anicca thread. Oh dear, oh dear, I'm not, I'm not practicing properly. And, and that very effort to try and take a single theme, the mind doesn't, just can't handle it in a skillful way. So it, it makes it into a real problem and, uh, and can't use it in a, in a skillful way. So it's, I, I feel it's most um, beneficial to experiment, try things out, and then and see what the results are for yourself. Everyone's different. Martin. You started off near the beginning talking about four unwholesome mental states. And I, I was trying to fit in and I'm a particularly unwholesome mental state, uh, that is to say, um, selfishness, uh, which derives, which is a sort of corollary of dualism, so that if the, the, if the world is divided into two very unequal parts, a very small but extremely important part, that's I, and the rest of it, which is a very large but less, impo less important, this is, I think it, I'm coming towards the, the feeling that it, this is delusion. It's one of the aspects of delusion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the four, as it, uh, uh, in the, um, in that section is uh, lust, anger, delusion and distraction. And they um, they uh, they all relate to the feeling of I. I mean, lust is like I want that, uh, and anger. You're bad, and, and I judge you as being bad and wrong, and I hate you. Y you are my problem. Get, you know, you, I need you to be different. So it's the the there, uh, and then um, delusion. You know, believing that to be. To be uh, no, uh, I am angry. I've got good reason to be angry. <laughs> or I want that, and if I do, if I get it, then I'm going to be happy. I will. I know. That, so that the more that the that the delusion is embedded, then the more that the objects of, of desire or aversion have validity. So the delusion is, is the sort of big one. It's the it's the thing that uh, it's the capacity to to believe if the, if there's a lot of wisdom then um, when as soon as the mind comes up with a de, with a desire or an aversion it's like i can't stand that then you know, it knows that it's like, so <laughs> well, i want that and and it, and it just has no traction but the more the delusion is like that the capacity to say yeah if i got that i will be happy if I get rid of that that idiot, then that you know the world will be a much better place. Then 
that uh, the more that there is delusion and the more those uh, those self-based um, perceptions and attitudes they they have traction they have validity and then more dukkha ensues I'll leave it there now because it's already past seven o'clock so call it quits for today <laughs>